2: You know you could you could you could have a few jobs and you've amassed quite a lot of money in your pension fund and so if we all started to align that money with impact you could have a massive impact on the world and the way and the way things are invested if you tilt the capital markets by one percent in the direction of impact it has a huge cascading mm-hmm. cascading impact on the underlying economy
3: Hey, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Very good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. So I'd like to start with understanding a little bit more about the people, what they do and why. So tell me a little bit more about Tom.
2: So a little bit of context. I started working in finance about 11 years ago. I started working on a Barclays graduate scheme, which is where I met Matt, who's the other founder. You know, Prior to that, you know, Matt and I are from... I'm from Wigan, Matt's from Liverpool. First people in our family to go to university, first people in our families to leave those places and go somewhere else. And when I joined Barclays in London, I thought I'd won the lottery in every sense of the word. You know, like money, career, you know, working in industry, none of my family ever worked in anywhere near. And that kind of wore off pretty quick, I felt, because I felt like what I was doing in my day-to-day job didn't have any real meaning to it, any purpose. And I realised that I'm a person that... That needs a motivation beyond just financial to kind of get out of, the bed, and get out of bed in the morning. And uh, it took me a few years to realize what was wrong with me. I felt like everything in my life looked on paper like it was great, but I wasn't happy with what I was doing. And I realized it was, everyone, everyone I grew up with was like, well, it can't be your job because your job's fantastic. And I was like, well, it can't be my job, then it must be something else. And then I realized it was my job, nothing that was like fundamentally broken with it, but I just need, I'm, I'm the kind of person that needs like a crusade or something that's bigger than me to just devote myself to. And I suppose then I started to realize that, you know, fine, you could use finance for, for good. Why couldn't it be used? It's a, it's a very effective tool. Capitalism is very, very effective at funneling capital to stuff. So why can't that stuff be good? There was no good reason. I found that you couldn't invest for return and for, for positive means. You don't have to give up return. And so that's kind of led me to, to to kind of where we are and what we do really was just that journey of of rethinking financial services. And there's a, there was a lot of people, well, a lot, there was a percent of a percent of people in, the, in those buildings thinking similar things. And we all kind of came, you know, to this part of the industry. Now it's blowing up and now people think, oh yeah, of course, this is the right path, the right direction for the industry. But, you know, 10, 11 years ago, no, but no one was really talking about it and and you were you are portrayed to be like a, a lunatic hippie thinking about these things in, in investment banking, in financial services. So I'm glad that's changed a little bit.
3: Yeah, so as I was saying just before we started recording, it's interesting because it pivots along further to the what we initially discussed back with Scott on a previous episode about you know, looking for an index, looking for a purposeful index that actually has more meaning behind it so people can actually invest more so into companies, businesses and industries and brands, I guess, that are much more aligned to like future goals and aspirations. And in respect to the work that they do, they, they started something called the Purpose Power Index. But mm. this is like a further pivot to that. So kind of tell me a little bit more about Circa 5000.
2: Yeah, so what Circa 5000 is, is uh, it's an investment platform, a long-term investment platform. So nothing short-term, nothing trading, where we are only investing in companies that are, building a prosperous long-term future for us across the overarching areas of people and planet, so climate and then non-climate impact areas so it could be anything from you know clean energy companies clean water companies to affordable housing healthcare companies across those kind of sectors and across those kind of themes and we predominantly you know get people to invest that haven't invested before so our customer base is is relatively young they are people that perhaps wouldn't invest ordinarily using the other methods of investing you know short term investing or investing in just some whatever it is just for return they want to earn financial return they want to plan for their future but they want to do it in a way that they see the future along their values and so that's all that we do really so we we we've created these themes that people can invest in like indexes we use indexes in the background for 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 the sub themes and people can start investing from almost as little as they want, and they can invest for themselves, their children, their pension, tax-free, taxable. And then in the on the in-app experience, there's a few key components. One is obviously investment, education, financial markets, commentary to let people know what's going on in the world in a kind of accessible way. And also impact reporting, impact measurement, so people can learn about the good that the companies are doing around the world, the the people's lives that are ultimately being impacted by these companies and and the different geographies they're investing in. And then over time, they can build a a financial future for themselves. So so there's two component parts of our business. One is all about impact investing and making this the default form of investing for everybody. And the goal for us would be, you know, in 10 years' time, no one's even thinking about it as a a trade-off or anything. It's just an obvious thing to do. And the other element of it is financial inclusion. You know, when Matt and I started work, like I said, we'd you know we never had an exposure to this industry before and none of our friends and family had either. And we felt like the, the, the industry was unnecessarily complicated and there's like a few basics you could teach people and that could do most of the job in terms of providing for the financial future. And so if you get, if you mobilize, you know, millions of those types of people to invest this way for the first time, they've never known any other way of investing before. It's all that they know. And that's how you transform an industry from the ground up, as we see it from the individuals that are making the investment choices. So that's the, that's the business, the overview.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think the assessment piece is key because the impact assessments and what people are actually doing, because at the moment, there's an awful lot of narrative about like, you know, things like leveling up or whatever it may be. And it's just, you know, like it's going beyond the narrative. Right. And it's actually people want to be able to assess performance and assess impact. So why, in your in your opinion, is impact investing? Why does it make sense financially as well as morally?
2: Hmm. Mm. yeah don't talk to me about levelling up I'm a northerner you know so I can see that's not happening I am
3: as well so we I know. can tell you I can tell you
2: <laughs> uh, uh, instantly it's warm to you from your voice you know so the returns argument that, that we have for our specific kind of impact investing because there's a million different variations of it like If you're just general investing, there's a million different variations of general investing. There's no reason why impact investing, you know, wouldn't be the same. There's different ways of implementing it. Our version is what we're looking to do is invest in companies who are providing products and services, solutions to huge structural shifts in society, long term structural shifts that are underpinned by a massive social or environmental cause. For example, water scarcity, right, is a huge problem in certain parts of the world. But there are companies that are providing solutions to that and then using technology to scale those solutions. And if you scale a solution on a massive structural shift, there's a long-term returns argument to that as an investable option. So it's not... It's not that there's some jargon in the industry like ethical investing or social responsible investing. That's actually different to impact investing. What those kind of investments are about are screening out bad companies that you want to avoid. So it all started with the Church of England not wanting to invest in tobacco and things like that. And then you're just left with some other stuff, right? There's no argument, returns argument, to investing in other stuff. But there's a returns argument to going, these are the companies of the future providing solutions that we think the world needs, these companies are using technology scale-out solution, that's a returns-based decision. So it's kind of like positively screening in companies based on the product and service and the revenue lines that they have. So that's the returns argument. And that's a nod to the purity of the approach because what we're trying to do is identify companies this is the ideal situation where 100% of their revenue is from one or more of these themes that we're trying to kind of get exposure to. So they only build affordable housing units, for example. Now, that's the whole the holy grail, like a pure play company, 100% of their revenue from this one very, very clean source. You can assess the impact very, very easily as a consequence because they do just this one thing over and over again really, really well. Some companies are not like that, though. They have multiple revenue sources. So we have to... Sometimes we can't invest in companies where 100% of the revenue is, is, is impactful, but as long as it's the majority and as long as the other area of revenue isn't a red flag that we want to avoid, is neutral, then we're fine with that. So that's how we look at it from a assessing a company perspective. You can get very, very complicated about how you measure and define impact. But if people think of it like that, we're investing in companies whose revenue model, the thing they sell, is intentionally trying to solve a big problem. That's the bulk of you know, the, the assessment, really. You can do loads of other things after that, but that's the big sift. That's what makes this different to ESG investing, for example. We're actually looking at what the company sells as opposed to whether the company is just well-run and a good corporate citizen. We do that as well, but it's an after we've, uh, we've assessed the revenue.
3: Yeah, I, th- I personally agree with you with respect to that. I think it's there's there's much more than ESG, and I wouldn't be surprised if ESG turns into another like corporate social responsibility exercise where totally
2: it's already happened It's already happened in my view. Yeah.
3: <laughs> where it's not going as far as people require. It, I'm interested as well because also the work that you do. Like it's this shift isn't exactly new. I remember back in 2019, like Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock said that you would only invest in those companies that have a strategy for climate change you 've also yeah. you know in the weeks after that in the business roundtable, which consists of CEOs of one hundred and eighty two com- companies in america largest companies in America, they came out and like totally pivoted on the work that they were going to do to yeah. make make sure that it was aligned to that statement as well and go above and beyond
2: yeah yeah it 's uh, changing blackrocker uh, an important organisation in this, I was actually with some of my BlackRock friends yesterday. There's actually quite a few people I know in there. So mm-hmm. the, their impact investment team is the team that I used to be at at my old company. They all moved to BlackRock, so I was saw a few of them yesterday. And very think, and, and a lot of the senior leadership there are very, very serious about it. They'll take the, that business itself was like a lot of time to transition to to this way because it's a huge behemoth, ten trillion AUM. You know, they can say things, but it takes a long time to move. But they're a huge factor in this. If we're going to address these problems, we're going to change the investment industry. BlackRock needs to be on board and it seems like they are. So it's very, very important.
3: I'm also interested about, you know, the shift that I I think at the moment we're in a, a paradigm shift in moment whereby you know, historically, if you look at like the traditional forms of capitalism, if you look at it from Milton Freeman's viewpoint, it was about shareholder value. And now mm-hmm. we're shifting more towards everybody has an equal stake in a company's success or longevity. There's numerous examples out there, don't want to name and shame them, but like we're ultimately in a position now whereby everybody has, we're, we're vested shareholders in the success mm-hmm. of that company. So you know, there is this like whole change agenda that's taken place. So a lot of that for change to really have firm footholds into the future we have to kind of look more towards like things like democratizing investing and yeah. the work that you know you do around those particular elements so if you would like to talk a little bit more about democratizing investing because i think that's yeah. a really interesting topic. One,
2: one element of what you're saying just like sparks something to me which is whether people realize it or not they are all currently investors because of their pensions right so the workplace pensions the old ones the ones that they're currently in everyone's got a pension a lot, a lot of people really realize they have that that they are in charge of where that's invested and so a lot of these uh, pension uh, funds that are set up by companies are invested in the worst companies that that people wouldn't want to invest in you know the coal companies for example tobacco gambling whatever just they just invest wherever and one of the one of the people one of the things that we want to make people realise is that's their money and they can do what they want with it. So if they are if there's someone who really cares about climate change or these other issues or the, the long term future, which most people of our generation and it's not really a generational thing, my my parents care, you know, so they just don't realise that they can do something about it. And so one of the big things that we're try, driving at the moment is is making people realise that they've got these pension pots sat around. They can consolidate them. They can actually do it with us. We'll go and get them for them. And then they can invest with impact, see it all in our app, just like it's another account, but it's their old workplace pensions all in one place alongside their ISA and their other investments that they've got so that we can kind of create more informed investors and create and make people realize that they have a massive say in how these companies should be run because they are ultimately the owners of these big businesses you know, all these big businesses, when you look at the, who owns them, it always says like big asset managers' names, like Vanguard, for example. But Vanguard are just a fund manager that's managing funds for all these pensioners, all these people who have a pension in the future or, or are drawing a pension now. And so I don't think people realize how much say they could have with their own money, if they all started to tilt it in the direction of more of a positive impact and a positive future. So that's one area of, of democratization and education that we're very, very passionate about. And it happens to be that for most people, their pension fund in terms of the size of it is the biggest amount of money they'll ever have. You know, you could, you could, you could have a few jobs and you've amassed quite a lot of money in your pension fund. And so if we all started to align that money, with impact, you could have a massive impact on the world and the way and the way things are invested. If you tilt the capital markets by one percent in the direction of impact, it has a huge cascading mm-hmm. cascading impact on the underlying economy. So that's a message that we're trying to get across properly. And I think if we're successful, even moderately so, you can start to massively change the pension industry. And that's where the bulk of people's money is invested. So democratising access to core investing, massively passionate about it because most people Growing up in this country and, you know, name other countries as well, don't invest, don't think to invest. I think that's starting to change. A lot of people don't think it's for them. So we want, you know, remove all the traditional barriers for that, educate people, make it accessible, and then move to pensions and get people to realise that they have a lot of power, the pensions that they can unlock if they invest it in the right way.
3: Yeah, I'm intrigued when you mentioned barriers because, like, as, as two Northerners, right, and also for, in respect to kind of the schools that we probably went to and the jobs that we picked up, yeah, we're probably fr- from a minority of a larger group in yeah. respect to what we've ended up doing and where we've ended up working yeah. and i think that it doesn't need to be that way i think a lot of it comes down to education a lot of it comes yeah. down to financial education the fact that people it's not like a door that you can't go through it's it's yeah. possible to kind of open that door and actually understand a little bit more about how the markets work yeah. about how um, the, the financial sector works and it's not a us versus them narrative. It's mm. actually it's it's accessible to all. And you know, it's I'm intrigued as well in respect to where we'll end up going. Because at the moment, if you look at the traditional markets, a lot of people look towards the strength of the pound, or they look towards the strength of the FTSE. And you know, that's as far as they go in respect yeah. to their knowledge of investing or but I think where, where you talk about people can actually draw together their pensions and put it into a place and actually have more transparency, I guess, over what they're investing in and why, then, yeah, you can drive the whole narrative for change by your conscious decisions to um, encourage businesses to be a lot more sustainable in their practices. Because where we go next, you've got to look at technology, right? And you've got to look at things like blockchains and Mm. like NFTs and and Mm. meta and crypto. Mm -hmm. These are kind of things that, to pe- to some people, it's like, oh, well, I've heard of it, but I don't understand what it is. Yeah. I think I think it's worthwhile talking a little bit more about like blockchains and the impact of crypto, and obviously yeah. NFTs in, in this kind of new financial world that we're going into.
2: Yeah, I've got a lot to say about it. I've got a lot to say about it, but it's interesting as as a related. You see a lot of people. I've you know I know a lot of people who people that I've grown up with that will come to me because they see me as an investing person. And they'll ask me investing questions. And I've got these people that I know that have never invested in the stock market but have bought cryptocurrency, so they're doing cash and cryptocurrency. And I think that is that is a problem. That is a problem. And you see people that have never invested before but go straight to trading stocks or buying derivatives or doing something very, very risky with the money. I think that is a problem because those types of investments, especially trading and short-term investments, should only really be done by certain types of people, generally industry professionals, generally with great technology and great information. if you're trying to build wealth for yourself, which most people who are investing are long-term wealth themselves, those are not the tools to do it those are, most people, seventy percent of people who use trading platforms never make any money, so people should understand that, and if they still want to do it, treat it like. Betting on the football a little bit, you know, it's like money that you're willing to lose after you've built up a proper investment portfolio that is diversified and long term. That's in terms of trading. Now, that's just my approach to general investing and how I would, how I've done it, and how I think people should think about doing it for themselves. But that's not to say that blockchain, crypto, etc., is not interesting, fascinating, and doesn't have applications because I think it does. I'm personally quite interested in it. In terms of us as a business. I think we, you could see a version of our offering in the future where as long as we're confident that the, the securities or whether the securities or not are positive for the world, we could offer them. So there are clean crypto. There are environmentally friendly tokens and things like that. There may be an add-on to our offering in the future. If we can still stay true to the impact and stay true to the long-term investment proposition, so we wouldn't give people the ability to trade in and out of crypto, never. But if you wanted to invest in something that was clearly demonstrably positive for the world and it was part of this new exciting technology, you could see us offering that at some point in the future. And then on, uh, on the NFT side, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated. We've, got, we've got a lot of, um, on our shareholder base, there's a lot of very experienced investors Brilliant investors, individuals, and and, uh, they take the—they're kind of like the Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger school of this is all bollocks. I don't want to be quick to bemoan anything at all because oftentimes in the past, where something news come out, and I've said that'll never happen, and it obviously does. But the NFT thing's interesting. I don't know on that. I don't know on that. I think there's some applications for it. I think there's probably nowhere near as many applications as people think, but there's some. I think it's very, very good for creators and artists and things like that and musicians absolutely buy into that. I don't think it's going to be like everything. And I also really, really don't like the idea of our lives being in, in the metaverse. I hate, it. you know, maybe it's a sign I'm becoming like an old grumpy northerner as opposed to the young one that I used to be, but I uh, I don't want to do that. So, but that's probably a sign that it's going to take off and do exceptionally well that I don't want to do it, you know.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, with my gaming hat on, I, I just see like the endless possibilities to it. So With, you know. with
2: gaming 100%, I'm not, I'm not into that. I, I, but I one hundred percent think that's a whole massive world, but I don't wanna I don't wanna take part in it.
3: But <laughs> I think I think in respect to some of the things that you mentioned, you know, like I agree in the, in respect to how you make conscious decisions around investing shouldn't be taken off some random around on TikTok that you've never heard and they're telling you to invest uh-huh. all your money in X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Because like that is just like it's just it's just gambling, right? At the end of yeah. the day in that yeah. respect. Some may pay off, don't get me wrong. Some may about. pay
2: off, but like there's a lot of a lot of fail. And There's then in investing, which is just because you've invested and it's paid off doesn't mean it's the right decision, right? Yes, so sir. it doesn't mean it was a good investment decision, even though it's paid off because you didn't understand what you were doing and you've got lucky. You don't really fundamentally understand what's driving the price, what's driving the interest. And that's where with a lot of the NFTs and, and some of the cryptos, it's a stretch to understand what is driving it. And I think what you're seeing now is, for me, the boom in NFTs, the boom in cryptos was a consequence of the Fed and the money printing that's been going on for, for the past 10 years and plus COVID. So you have a lot of liquidity in the system. That money needs to find a home to earn returns. And therefore, it just starts filtering down into these random nooks, nooks and crannies of the world and blows up and inflates certain asset types, maybe ahead of where they're at. And now, we're, now we've seen the correction in those things. And if you're, for most of us, We've never lived in a world where the central banks weren't pumping the system full of money all the time. We've never lived in that world. Well, we lived in it, but we have never worked in it. Now, during our working careers, we're about to experience what that's like. And if you speak with people who've been investing for 30, 40, 50 years, it's a lot, lot different to the world that we've been in. And what drives things more are the fundamentals and the real world use cases of the things, not just this is going up quickly, get on it until it, and then it stops. And then you get out of it. It, it, That's just gambling in its purest form. Investing is more than that. So I think we're now, we're now unfortunately for a lot of these people that have been speculating, who've never invested before, who don't really know what they're doing, who are listening to some, some lad on TikTok, flogging them some random names or some coins they are experiencing the harsh reality of their decisions. I think now, Um, exactly,
3: and they're going all in it's like playing poker, right? They're going all in and They've essentially just got a pair of nines, and it's just like you, you're going on it, all in on a, on a really yeah. rubbish card. So, you've, you've yeah. really it's very easy to stuff.
2: investment, the market just continues to go up, and all you've got to do then is pick a riskier investment, yeah, yeah. go up more than the market. But now the market is doing this and trending this way for, for now. This is where proper investors make money, and and by, I mean by proper investors, I mean like the experienced professionals who are interested in making short term money, but for most people. What they should be doing is just investing for the maximum time period that they could and trying to leave it alone and trying yeah. to add to it in increments they shouldn't be trying to play these games because it's more than a full-time job for experienced individuals and i always say this start so i used to work at wellington management and wellington's got some of the most successful hedge funds and active strategies in the world and the best investors were only right 51 percent at the time and they're career professionals with all the data and all the research in the world so what makes you think you're going to be better than them and and I know that, so that's why I don't do those things really with my own money. Um, and if I do do it, I see it as like a gamble.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh one dot com
3: So there's a few things that I wanna pick up because it seems rude not to bear in mind your experience in in the sector. On a previous episode, I ha- had a conversation with Morris Pearl, who used to work at BlackRock, and he's gone on to work for the Patriotic Millionaires, and they're kind of trying to implement like a we- like a wealth tax in America. You hear calls for a wealth tax in the UK, especially on the basis of oil and gas firms making a lot of money and and kind of taking a lot in respect to dividends. What is your opinion? What is your viewpoint on the wealth tax first, and then second to that, the challenges that we see. At the moment, we see 54% increase in bills. We see 9 on 10% increase in inflation. There's a lot of parallels that I'm seeing now versus the initial start of the financial crash back in 2008, mm-hmm. 2009. I fully expect a recession to come in play in the mm. next coming months. What is your opinion of the market now versus that time? But first mm. what's your opinion of a wealth tax to begin with?
2: Yeah, a lot of great questions. So I think it depends on how it's implemented because... There are pros and cons to just a broad brush wealth tax because you could you do genuinely have a lot of people who on paper are wealthy, i.e., they have a house that's worth a million quid in London, but they don't have any they don't actually have any money to pay the tax bill if it came in. So it entirely depends on at what level and to whom and on what basis. Because if you're taxing people based on an asset, an asset value. I feel like that's a little bit not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is make sure that exceptionally wealthy people who are earning a lot of money pay their first share of that money. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where I think it was, it was Miliband, wasn't it? in his, in his manifesto track who, who had it in the last time for labor. And, and I think it was, it was on the asset value. I think it's where you lost people basically because you have a lot of people that would be hit by that, which on paper, yes, they've got a lot of money, but are they going to sell the house just so they can pay the tax bill? So I think it depends on how it's done supportive if it's done in the right way and doesn't penalise people unnecessarily based on just house house prices.
3: Yeah, I think it's also the understanding of what is wealth. And when
1: we're talking
2: about wealth, like a, yeah. a
3: wealth tax, it's, it's not the 80, 90% of us. It's actually the you know the, the 1%, the 2%. That's the thing. I think a lot of people then focus, go, well, what you focus, what
2: tends to happen in this, con- this country, and I think it's same in the US, is when people have those conversations, they immediately go to, well, I'm earning a decent amount and I have a decent house. However, I'm not worth a billion quid. But I think what people are talking about is these exceptionally rich people paying more. And I think if that message was, was brought across in an articulate way, then I think you'd get more support for it because you're not targeting like, you get a lot of people who are like new middle class in this country. I would class my parents and me, we grew up very, very working class. My parents now are working class people, but both, I would say middle class lifestyle. And, they, and for them, anecdotally, their perspective is, well, I've just finally got some money you know, and I feel, I don't, I don't feel like this is fair, you know what I mean? So it's all the implementation of it, I think.
3: And I think it's also the pivoting back to the education piece that we said that Mm -hmm. almost like education and investing, you've got to educate people on a wealth tax and taxation, because like anybody that's kind of going to succeed in that argument, they're going to have to dictate it and articulate it in a way that clearly defines the 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 tax is going to be on the super rich on the people that are firing themselves into space on rockets for the sake of it, yeah yeah uh, rather rather than like your parents and my parents that are yeah. kind of gone from kind of middle class up to fairly wealthy yeah uh, through, through their hard work and whatever but it, it takes to-
2: talented popular uh, you know politicians to uh articulate that and, and unfortunately i don't think we've got any of them left
3: <laughs> yeah no so it's a it's a difficult climate at the moment um, let's let 's look look at the the parallels and in respect to the challenges that we face in this country and and in respect to the parallels that can be drawn to two thousand and eight two thousand and
2: nine yeah, so two thousand eight two thousand and nine was was driven heavily by you know by overzealous lending by banks on mortgages. You know, in America, in America, you used to have these ninja loans, you know, no income, no job. And you got a mortgage. You had LT, you know, 110, 120% LTV mortgages. You know, so we're not in that position. So if, if it is to be a recession, it is to be a crash. It won't be the same reasons and it won't be the same aftermath because the banking sector is much safer now because of the, because of what they did in the aftermath of the financial crisis. That's not to say there won't be a recession or there will be a recession. I've, I've worked in financial services for 11 years now. And believe me, every single year I've worked in financial services, credible economists have said there'll be a recession soon. Every single year. And so. At times in the past, I've been convinced it was ha- it would happen, and it wouldn't. So I've signed off from making predictions either way because I, I they always seem to be wrong by these very clever people, and no one ever seems to get penalised for these wrong dis- these wrong calls. They just make a new call, and then yeah. the old ones for- forgotten. So whether or not there'll be a recession, or you could you could see one. There's a lot of re- lot of reasons why the Bank of England have come out with a very bearish forecast. Well, but the Bank that. of England have done that also in the past, and and I've got it wrong. The the worrying thing is inflation, which everyone thought was transitory, which is proven not to be. But if you keep talking about all these old heads, I know like investment management heads, they've all said to me that, you know, at some point all this money we've pumped into the system will come home to roost in some way. And now we're starting to see that. And we obviously pumped more of it into the system during COVID. You know, you could argue for right and wrong reasons, you know, all day. But now that money's getting spent, you also have the, you know, you have problems with, with Brexit, you have problems with the oil price. You have the Russia-Ukraine situation. For us in the UK, it's, it's like the perfect storm, and that's why inflation is the way it is. And I don't think that the government is doing enough in terms of helping the poorest people in society deal with those increases in energy bills. So you could instead of a wealth tax, you could you should have a windfall tax on the oil and energy companies that could help yeah, yeah. people with the bills. One and one that money goes that.
3: straight to the that money goes straight to the people. It doesn't go into a system that it goes straight, straight to, the to the people because yeah, that's what I'm. That's the only I'm, way I'm, about I'm a really big a fan of, if you look at the QE,
2: the quantity of ease and all the money printing that's been going on over the yeah, past yeah. 10, 11 years, only recently did we actually do it properly, which was you gave people money to spend. Because all that previous time, the money was printed, but it went into the financial system and inflated equity prices yeah. and house prices. So people who had equity portfolios and people who had houses have got richer, but everyone else hasn't. So that So the middle class and the upper class have got richer. But... Poor people have got, have got, I haven't benefited from that. And now poor people are getting hammered because of inflation or the bills going up. So it's like a perfect storm that's been happening over the past 10 years and the government needs to do more. So well, I don't think the situation, the situation is entirely different to 2008 because of the reasons for that crash yeah. and what happened. So as opposed to a crash, you could see a prolonged period where it's not a fantastic environment you could have prolonged inflation that could be true and you could have a sticky situation for a few years i think that's more likely than us go right the world implodes and we're building again i don't think we're, i don't think that's going to happen but again you know what do i know you know this is just what i what i've kind of what i gleaned from what people are saying
3: yeah i think the challenges that we have at the moment in the uk we face a rather unique circumstance that a lot of countries don't face like if you look at globally in respect to GDP, it was around about 2% of the cost was the pandemic. But Brexit as mm. a whole is about 4% of GDP. Mm. Um, mm. Is there's, there's a vast parallel between that. And I, I noticed today that they're trying to kind of go back to the EU and, and start that, a negotiation again on a, on a deal that was apparently oven ready. It, it's interesting because like, we have Brexit. And sooner or later, people are going to have to have adult conversations about Brexit and the yeah. realities of it because it then subsequently drives, as you say, like things like inflation as is, is at almost like record levels. The UK are in this perfect storm whereby it's it's been built from COVID, it's been built from financial malpractice, it's been built from Brexit, it's been built on a on on terminologies of take back control, levelling up and all that nonsense, where ultimately we need to get beyond that. We need to start looking towards solutions and we, we need to get people to speak calmly and and mm. articulate the challenges that we see at the moment rather than kind of this he said, she said nonsense that seems to be going on quite frequently in the UK because I, I agree with you in respect to we won't see a full-on light switch moment where the the, the lights are turned off. What mm. we'll see in this country is fuel prices continue to rise. Our our cost of food continue to rise. We'll see mm. people that are in, housings that they maybe rent their their rental prices will rise. If yeah. you own a house, yeah, your, your your house will rise in value, but it'll be a false rise. So like if you okay. look at um any, like say if there was a light switch moment, then a house that say worth a million now, the lights go off it's worth six hundred seven hundred thousand you're then in negative three hundred thousand four hundred thousand negative equity Mm. it's it's about understanding finance and how it really works and how it works on an individual level because I think only by doing that then you you can be part of a solution and Yeah, I I believe we're we're shifting more towards a peer-to-peer human-centric purpose economy whereby people are looking more to the long term and people are understanding more of these kind of short-term challenges and focusing on solutions. And Mm -hmm. so ultimately, the world that we kind of transition into is more equipped to face crises because there will be more crises as we go along. That's Mm -hmm. just like the world is quite turbulent. So I'm positive in respect to the world that we're heading into because I think we 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 need to be we need to be part of the conversation. But I think I do feel yeah, like we're we're both from the north, right? So if we talk honestly about leveling up, and we talk honestly about the challenges that we faced in in our early years, there is a division, and it's it, it doesn't need to be that way. So I am interested because you're northern. Tell me about you growing up in respect to, and also how you end up going into finance.
2: Yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot to talk about in that. So yeah, I, obviously I was born and raised in Wigan, and I generally had a, a fantastic upbringing. You know, I was from a big family half my family uh, from Ireland, half family from from Wigan, and we had a massive family growing up. Very very fun upbringing. Very very lucky to have had so many family members around me that that loved me and brought me up really well. And so yeah, it was. You say it was working class. It was Wigan's an old mining town. It's still very much that kind of mentality. So no one particularly had a lot of money, but you never felt that because everyone was in the same position. So it felt great, to be honest. You know, I can't really, I can't claim to be like you know downplay and be all like you know saying it was it was it was too hard and things like that. Yeah, I mean, compared to some people, sure, but it was a i had a great upbringing i love wigan i've actually moved back after 11 years in london i've moved back recently because i missed it so much i love i love being around my family and friends and we, people from wigan like you're just for people that are listening that are not familiar with the the geography of, of like lancashire in the northwest it's right next door to bolton so if you know peter k that's what everyone in wigan's like basically so my, my dad doesn't find peter k funny because he knows 50 peter k's at the pub <laughs> is what he said to me and then my dad's as funny as him in his own right you know what I mean so people are just jokers you know they're getting on with life they work hard they play hard that's the kind of the place it is basically and and I missed it I missed I missed the energy of the people and so I I said to your point though the major thing that I think this all comes back down to on every single issue more or less is the education system in this country if I think about my school years and my high school years in Wigan luckily for me my mum my brought me up very, very in military fashion, basically. She was very, very strict with me. She she would do things like, this sounds like child cruelty, but I'm going to tell her, sorry mum, but it, it stood me in good stead. Before my tea every night, so up north you call it you know, tea. breakfast dinner tea, so yeah. sorry about that. Anyway, for your dinner, she would make me sit on the kitchen counter and recite my times tables all the way through to my nine times tables, each number all the way through, flawlessly, and then I would have my food basically so she, she used to make me do my English literature homework I would write it in pencil first and if it was flawless then I would write it in pen and then I would write it in pen in the book so I have to do my homework at least three times for every piece of homework I had so she created this like hard-working lunatic character basically mm-hmm. and she did it on purpose because she was like I don't want him to get in you know be hanging around with like bad groups of people Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I was doing a sport for a team because that would keep me out of trouble. I didn't know. I didn't know. Didn't know that's what she was doing. But you know, rugby, football, whatever. I was playing for two or three football teams at one point. You know, I, I was just always playing sport, and that was her way of keeping me out of trouble and keeping me on the straight and narrow. But anyway, the education system. It was. I mean, it was fine. I was lucky enough that I was in the top set for everything, basically. And what seemed to happen at that school, there was ten sets for every class, and the top set got the best teachers and if you're in say set three and below they just let you like languish and you know, do whatever so it was like you only got a good education if you happen to already be good which is ridiculous really if you think about it but you never got taught anything that was any in any way useful for your life yeah. you know? <laughs> so there was no financial education no so political education i'm very very you know interest in politics, I did politics at A-level, I ended up doing politics at A-level and it's part of my degree as well but there was no economic, politics, finance, there was no like, here's how the world works, here's how to think about things, it was all nonsense and I think because of that you didn't engage the kids at all at school. I only worked hard out of fear of letting my parents down yeah. and I had a couple of teachers that were brilliant for me so I was afraid of letting them down as well so I, I did well for them really. I wasn't personally interested in anything that I was doing but it was out of fear of of letting people down that I worked. And to be honest, fear drives me majorly still. Like fear of not doing well, fear of being on the street. I wouldn't be on the street now, I'll go and live with my parents. But it's, it's true, fear of failure is still very, very much embedded into my character. But the so sco- then you did your A levels equally as nonsense and abstract, that English language, English literature, French and politics, that's not doing me any good really. And then my degree, which was politics and criminology. And then I entered the real world. I was like, I know nothing, basically. I know nothing about anything. And I started at Barclays and I couldn't even work out percentages on my calculator. That's not even a joke. That's not even a joke. I don't know how I got on that graduate scheme. I have no idea. I think, honestly, Matt and I have joked that we were some quota because you had like... 50 people there was harvard princeton these amazing schools in singapore you had very wealthy families and their children were on it very very powerful people's families i won't name names but and then matt and me in the corner like what the hell's going on it was the first time i saw anyone wearing a little pinky ring i was like why is it why are these lads wearing these little rings and uh, I was like, that's my family crest i was like dad do we have a family crest no obviously <laughs> not so i think i think the education that's why of all his faults, and you could name a lot of them, Tony Blair was great in a lot of respects because education, education, education was his mantra, was his focus, because that is how you open people's eyes to everything. That's how you prepare them for the future. That unlocks, like, all the stuff of, like, the you know, the typical thing that I felt growing up was, oh, that's not for us. Oh, we don't go to London. or oh, we don't work in those industries. You get a proper job and you do. That's not for us kind of mentality. You change all that mentality. Yeah. And as a consequence, you change social mobility and you change people's view of their life and their career and what's possible for them by opening up their, their eyes to stuff. So yeah, I don't know how that's, it's hard to change because it's obviously a government run thing and it's, you know, it's, it's glacial to change, but education is so important. Yeah. So important. And I was lucky that I had, I would, I would never have gone to do an A-level or a degree. And I told him this, if it wasn't for my English literature teacher, he kind of changed my my life in a lot of respects and um, I wrote him a letter to explain to him, you know, a few years ago that he that basically changed my life. If I look back, my mum and dad taught me all the basics: hard work, be polite, turn up, etc. Repeat, repeat, repeat. But he he taught me intellectual curiosity and to think for myself. And he did it in a way that I don't think a lot of people who are from a normal, like, relatively normal background get exposure to. So there's a there's a charity in London called Debate Mate, and what they do is they go into working class areas of London and they teach the kids debating, which they do at private schools, right? They obviously debate topics. And what it, te- what it teaches you is how to construct an argument, how to oppose an argument, self confidence, public speaking, standing up in front of your peers. You never get any of that. But my English literature teachers sometimes would come in and go, right, we're not doing the curriculum today. We're going to split the room up and here's the subject. You're going to debate for it. You're going to debate against it. I had no idea what he was doing at the time, but we loved it. And it was like a challenge and it just unlocked things in my mind. And then that set me off on a path. I feel of like questioning stuff and yeah, eternally grateful for him. So if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have, I, would, I would have gone and done a, a trade. So I remember having a conversation with my, with my dad and my dad was like, don't do that. But I worked in the construction industry. He was like, you've got a chance to go on to college and A-level that we never did. So you've got to go and do it. And if it wasn't for my dad and, and maybe, you know, my teacher, my life would have been, you know, very very, very, very different what it is now so that's luck really but that i met that teacher and but yeah a lot of people don't get that and it's, the education system just doesn't really give you anything at all and i think that's where we're, that's where we're abandoning people and that's where we're really messing up
3: yeah and i couldn't agree more with regards to the education 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 piece because if you if you look at there's small tweaks you can do. I know they try to do a lot with respect to academies and stuff. And I know there's also a debate that people have in respect to private schools versus public and like, should they be scrapped? Should they not? I think um, wider, it's more so actually, you know, you talk about not being able to do percentages, like actually teaching people maths properly. That's actually, you know, real world, maths. Relevant, real yeah, world maths, relevant to a job. That yeah. That would be useful. Definitely a political education because mm-hmm. anybody that is like, switched on you don't need to be switched on to be honest in respect to politics you just need to have a memory and yeah. you look back to kind of 97 mm. when blair came in like they came in it, it's almost like what we see now is exactly the same mm. um debates with the, mm. at the time they were talking about like corruption back then they were talking about a lot of the problems that we see at, at this point in time was also back then and yeah. blair came in and started talking about um you know britain deserved better New Labour, new, new Hope, like yeah. it's simple messages. But ultimately, actually, when we do choose to elect a government, we have to hold them accountable for their actions. And, you know, like anybody that is listening to the Queen's speech the other day, that's just like a, a refurb of previous narratives that it's not doing anything for us. So mm. we need mm. to, like, decide as we go forward, how do we hold our... Um, MPs accountable. Like I would say, the public spoke in the in the local elections. I'm very much intrigued as to where we go next in, in that respect. I won't go too deep yeah, into politics. I
2: mean, simple things. Like I always remember my early on at college when I, I chose politics and I started doing those uh, those lessons. And I was like, what? There's different voting systems in different countries. Do we have a voting system that's called this, and it does this, and here's the pros and the cons of it. I was like, what? Because you just get brought up like this is it. This is the way it is. And because you don't know alternatives, oh, Germany does it quite differently. They have an element of PR in there. Oh, no, okay. Well, what's what's PR? And then you just go go down these different routes and that's the great failure, I think, is. And, and, you know, you could argue it's intentional. See why there's an element of it, because you don't want an electorate that's going to rip up the voting (laughs) system, you know. But, yeah. Failing people on those things, you've got to find all those things out for yourself, basically, or get taught it if you choose it in later education. Otherwise, the vast majority of people never find out.
3: I've, I've mentioned it in previous podcasts. Like, there's things such as like the great resignation that's taking place at the moment. There's things like the effects of um, the COVID pandemic that took place preceding that. There's the realities of Brexit and also the continuation of realities of Brexit, as we see at the moment. Like One thing that happens in moments of change is largely people actually reflect on their mm. lives and reflect mm. on change and start questioning why and the, and you know, the, the what's behind that. And, and yeah. um, I think there's a lot to be said of what Simon Sinek st- talks about in mm. start with why, if you start with why things are taking place. And if you like, if you understand there is a different way, then yeah. there's an awful lot you can do as an individual in respect to ushering in change, not only from a personal level, but also from yeah. a wider societal level as well. And I think, you know, where we are we at the moment? I, I think we're at the, like, the moment of just a debate, right? We're, we're starting the conversations. People mm-hmm. are re-educating themselves on what's important and why. Yeah. And I think further further down the line, we will see the kind of change that a lot of us have been clamoring for for a long period of time, but it mm-hmm. takes time, right?
2: It takes time, but you're right. I mean, like, if it wasn't for the financial crisis of 2008, we wouldn't have made the change in the banking sector that we needed to make. You could argue that this form of investing that we do wouldn't have had it's people because what happened in that financial crisis was people were like why are we doing it this way isn't there a better way and it started this like questioning of what what's the purpose of investing what's the purpose of financial services and impact investing kind of properly you know it obviously existed before that but it started to rise more after it as people started to think about using these things as a tool so yes i think massive change comes from these big moments these big crises and you've seen it like what happened with covid recently people started to change their question their relationship with work what they want from their lives it always comes from these big moments so I'm hopeful I'm an optimist yeah I'm right an optimist
3: like, like you mentioned you moved back from like back to Wigan from London we moved up to Newcastle from London and yeah, like, that's a, way north
1: that's way yeah, way north yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah
3: but there's an awful lot of people that kind of did make that shift and yeah you know like technology has opened up the realities that you can work with whoever whenever and there's huge possibilities so I think rather than yeah like we are in a in a true moment of turbulence. But rather than kind of be mired down by thinking that you know you f- you feel helpless, look look around for areas of hope and like educate yourself and understand that what is possible by kind of a utilizing your voice for change and also b what what is possible if you use your time to educate yourself on history and also the future and what it may actually evolve into and I think if you do that you can put yourself on a journey for development that you'll you know you, you won't regret you'll you'll start seeing the world in a in a much more um, brighter way and you'll start impacting the world around you in a much more brighter way and the more and more people that go on this kind of change journey the better our future will become as a whole so I think there's loads of positive positivity in respect to where we're going so just to close out because I could talk to you all day um, yeah I love that out. I love that
2: what you just said that's uh that was perfect I love that
3: Just to close out, if, is there any like final thoughts or key takeaways you'd like to leave with our audience?
2: We've talked a lot about a lot of stuff. I'll talk shop for a second from my, from a circa 5000 perspective. Depending on who the audience is and who's listening, if you don't invest, you know, it is open to you. And I think everyone should invest long term for the future. It's one of the key ways that you can secure your own future way out into retirement and way out into the future. And you should do it in a way that builds a future you want to retire into, you know? So invest in the companies that you think Uh, doing stuff that's good for the world hopefully that's with us but that's the message from me and i think the more people do that the better for them the better for themselves and the better for everyone else as well it's a win-win
3: well thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you You me too really enjoyed it thanks very much
1: thank you for listening to the purpose made podcast Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made, or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode.